Before we begin, I would just like to state for the record that today is March 14th, 2022, and my name is Ben Bauman. I'm here in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I am speaking via phone with Ralph Foley, who is in Anna Maria, Florida, and we are doing an interview for the Indiana Legislative Oral History Initiative. Just starting off, when and where were you born? Well, I was born in uh, Martinsville, Indiana, on April 23, 1940. Okay. On the cusp of uh, of the war, I was the third son of four, and uh, uh, it was, uh, of course, my earliest remembrances as a child, as one, as the birth of my little brother, youngest brother, and two was uh, the airplanes from Baccarat, uh, from the uh, oh, the Air Force base uh, that was connected with uh, Camp Atterbury at that time was in Columbus, Indiana, and uh, the planes uh, would practice low altitude flying and sometimes and roared over the, our little town in Martinsville. Mm, okay, that's interesting. And uh, what were your parents' names? My father, Charles H. Foley, and my mother was Beatrice Louise. Her maiden name was Myron, M-Y-R-E-N. Okay. You know, just like other names in translation, I have seen M-Y-H-R-E-N, and I think it's the same name. Mm, Okay, yeah. And... um, Let's see, you mentioned that you had some Swedish ancestry, it sounds like, earlier when we talked. Uh, where was your family from before Indiana? Oh, uh, well, my father was originally from Illinois, my okay. mother uh, Upper Peninsula, Michigan, but my father's family moved to Morgan County when he was a child, and uh, as life goes by, had a couple of sisters. South Bend, Indiana was a, uh, a, uh, a real attraction. It was a good industrial thing, and uh, that was an up-and-coming city, and he had two sisters that went up to South Bend to find their way and make a living, and my mother and her sister uh, ended up in South Bend, and the four women became roommates. And when Dad went up to visit his sisters, he met my mother. Oh, okay. Wow, yeah. And he brought her down to the wilds of central Indiana. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And what were your parents' occupations? Well, Mother started life as a teacher, but then she, I guess today we'd say administrative assistant. She worked for a marble and tile company in South Bend, a bookkeeper, answering the phone, making appointments, and blah, blah. And yeah. uh, when she met, married Dad and came to Martinsville, uh, within a year started a family, and, and uh, it was, there were, were a few jobs anyway, but she soon became a full-time mother. Mm, okay. And, uh, my father uh, had a number of 
brief occupations, but uh, generally speaking, he finally got a law degree. Uh, in those days, you didn't need an undergraduate degree to get a law degree. It was not a graduate degree. Okay. And was admitted to the bar, and uh, so he started in the throes of the Depression. He started this uh, small-town practice of law, which was really tough back in those days. So. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Um, and did you have any siblings? Yes, I had three brothers. Okay. Wow. There were four of us. I'm number three. Oh, okay. So, how would you describe your childhood then? Well, uh, for a while it was long. It was uh, just small town uh, kid life, uh, you know, that we rode by. There was no such thing as a bad. I'll tell you, one thing about growing up in Martinsville is uh, there was no good side, bad side, really. Okay, and yeah. We rode our bicycles all over town. Uh, the same thing was true when my wife and I were raising our sons, that uh, the economic differences between kids, really, uh, or kids' parents, uh, while I guess you knew about it, it wasn't... Uh, didn't prevent uh, socialization and, you know, and uh, friendships and all of that. It wasn't stratified uh, by class because there was not enough of any class to be stratified. Sure, yeah. Uh, there was always somebody who had a lot more than you, uh, or there was always somebody who had a lot less, I guess. But mm -hmm. uh, basically, I, I think that uh, economic... Uh, kind of middle or the economic uh, uh, is is sometimes more important than race or religion or other things but uh, right uh, we, in the small town life and then when I was about in fourth grade we moved out into the country my dad was a country boy okay really we only had uh, six and three fourths acres but he wanted a big garden and to have some animals and things and uh Mother did not take to it well, so we eventually moved back to town. Yeah, yeah, that's a, always an adjustment in lifestyle to go from, yeah, rural areas yeah. to city or town, yeah. Yeah, we had to have a party line telephone, and, and if you're in a profession, that wasn't good. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, for the longest time, we only had a, we were a one-car family, so. Yeah, okay. Uh, um, anyway. Yeah, so who would you say were the most influential people in your childhood? Your parents or? Absolutely, my parents. Absolutely. Okay. And what, what would you think are like some of the major thing, like lessons you kind of learned from them growing up? Work. Uh, work hard. Uh, my father probably overdid it, but, you know, when you start from minus zero, you have to work hard yeah and that's that he started from minus zero he uh is uh he grew up on a family farm that today would be impractical with today's machinery 
And besides, in the Great Depression, it went down the tubes, uh, which always embarrassed him mm. tremendously. Uh, but uh, so uh, just the diligence of working hard and uh, being honest, he was, my parents were both uh, churchgoers and uh, emphasized good behavior. Uh, uh, I don't know. My father was just uh, a tremendous role model for us all. Yeah, sure. That's great. Um, what understanding did you have regarding your uh, parents' political beliefs? Well, uh, <laughs> my mother grew up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and I remember talking, and, and down in Martinsville, they were uh, good Republicans, but uh, 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 I don't know what in the world he would have thought of Trump, but uh, other than that, yeah. <laughs> very good Republicans, but uh, talking politics with Mother one time, she said, I said, well, Mother, all your family are Democrats, and she said, you don't understand in the Upper Peninsula, your choices were between the Communists and the Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my because God. of the socialist yeah. uh, workers and all of that, she sure. said, we actually had uh, a communist in town until World War II. Yeah. Wow. But uh, up there in the in the Northwoods, but uh, they didn't know anything was bad about that. I mean, yeah. Wow. Um, it wasn't, uh, didn't have the same connotation up there that it is today, that's for sure. Sure, yeah. But at any rate, she laughed and said those were my choices. But uh, <laughs> Dad's family were uh, Lincoln Republicans and uh, very, uh, uh, you know, they weren't prosperous people, but they were... Uh, uh, certainly believed in the union cause and, uh, and were ever after Republicans. Uh, family names. My middle name is Morton. I was named after my father's uncle. And he was named after Oliver P. Morton, who was named after Oliver Perry. Ezra Perry. Okay. Oliver P. Morton was the Civil War governor of Indiana. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Interesting. And back in the day, you know, uh, people named their sons and daughters after public figures. Yeah. Not so much now, but uh, right. uh, uh, Morton, uh, Governor Morton was a, a, a hero of some kind to my ancestors and uh, perpetuated his name. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So I used to say at the state house, my statue is <laughs> on the <laughs> east side of the state house. It was Oliver P. Morton. Yeah, that's right. There you go. Um, what schools did you attend growing up? Well, the elementary schools in Martinsville, Martinsville High School. I attended uh, Indiana University undergraduate, uh, majoring in government political science type stuff, and then uh, the law school, I ended up going to IU Bloomington. Okay, yeah. And uh, when you were growing up, did you already have an interest in, like, government and politics, or or was that only well, after you went to Indiana University? Dad was always uh, 
uh, had an interest in politics. Uh, uh, I wasn't, if I was around, I wasn't aware, of course, but I remember him talking about going to a Wendell Wilkie rally when he ran for president and down to uh, uh, southern Indiana for Homer Capehart's farm. And uh, he was was, uh, a prosecutor for several terms. He ran for prosecutor, which is one way an unknown lawyer in town can get his name out, I guess, in those days. Yeah. He was a sole practitioner. And uh, at any rate, uh, he always had, and it was a delegate to the state convention, and a time or two he took me and my next brother to a political uh, convention. And uh, when they were a lot of fun, they're more, uh, we don't nominate, through, we, you know, we nominate through the primary now more than we do through the convention. We have still some state offices that are through the convention, but... Yeah, okay. It, uh, it is, uh, it is, so he always had an interest in politics, and uh, we also, uh, uh, some of the city leaders and so forth were prominent Democrats, and, uh, uh, so we had a more vital Democrat party in those days than we seem to do today in my community. And mm-hmm. they were all friends. They, they lived together and, you know, uh, contested together. Yeah, okay. But, and people have feelings, I understand that. Sometimes you're mad as hell, but you get over it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, as a child growing up, did you like have any particular views about the state of Indiana or about being a Hoosier or something? Well, I felt pride in being a Hoosier. My parents were readers. Both of them, uh, uh, were readers. That's where I got addicted to a daily newspaper and why I miss having, uh, what I considered to be as good a newspapers as we did when I was young. Mm-hmm. And uh, down here, I take the Bradenton newspaper, uh, daily newspaper, but uh, and I like it in, in terms of uh, coverage. I think it does a better job. Maybe the star, I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. not. Anyhow, uh, I've always been a reader, and... Uh, there was a series, in fourth grade, there was a series of, oh gosh, what was those books called? But they were books like on Abraham Lincoln and, uh, in Indiana and, and uh, 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 the uh, Indian Wars and different things like that. But, so I always have had, a, and Dad loved history, so I always had, it's interesting, Ben. I did not uh, take uh, history in college. I never squeezed it in, but I always loved history. Yeah. And, uh, that's one regret I had. And when I was in the legislature, one of my friends, of course, I think he was having marital problems, but anyway, he went back to school and got his master's in history while attending the General Assembly. And I thought, well, how cool is that? Yeah, wow. <laughs> uh, uh, 
sometimes they go to school part-time or college part-time to get a law degree or something that will, uh, and that's more common. But history degree was uncommon for, yeah. Anyway, uh, I've always loved the history. I'm, I read, I still read books. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Cool. Okay. Um, so, but that interested me in the state of Indiana and what, uh, uh, probably didn't give you a totally realistic, uh, period, uh, uh, picture, but we also had, uh, like, uh, third and fourth grade teachers were just extremely good about, uh, Indiana history and, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's always nice. Yeah. Good um, so after you graduated from college um, and you went on to get a law degree, um, what did you hope to do after graduation? What was your goal to get right into politics, or were you just trying to work as a lawyer? And yes, uh, to work as a lawyer, I've always had a political interest. Uh, uh, one time, I ran for county chairman and failed, uh, but. Uh, uh, again, it was a different era of what a county chairman would do and how it was. But at any rate, uh, they, uh, uh, yeah, I always had an interest in politics and knew my local politicians. We had a congressman, Bill Bray, and uh, Bill Bray was a remarkable man in a lot of ways. And uh, my next oldest brother, became a capital page in Washington, D.C., due to the patronage of Bill Bray. And uh, so uh, that introduced, you know, that got some interest in politics, too, was uh, because of Mr. Bray and uh, good friends with his uh, son, Richard, today. But yeah. And it, uh, uh, my interest in politics grew. I I never really formulated a plan to run for office at some point in time, but it came at a, you know, uh, opportunity sometimes is a is a window that closes. And uh, we Richard Gray was state representative, and he was leaving that to run for. Uh, uh, state Senate. So there was an open seat. And uh, uh, I went to a meeting of interested people, seeing if we could unite a, uh, around a candidate and came out of the meeting, perhaps the candidate. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, I talked it over with my wife. And uh, her dad was always, always interested in politics. And uh, uh, he was also a Republican, and which made it nice. And uh, from time to time, people had asked him to run for Congress, but he never did. But at any rate, he was an interesting guy. And uh, so I asked my wife, went home to talk to her, and said, I have an opportunity, probably the only one I'll ever receive, to run on an open seat in Morgan County. And she said, I'd rather have you run and lose than always regret you didn't try. Wow, okay. So uh, I thought, where did she come up with that? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What? What? What rock has she been hiding under? I, I, <laughs> of all the things I didn't expect her to say, that was probably it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it was very, very good advice. So both of us worked very, very hard uh, to win the primary. To the general election wasn't as hard as the primary. Yeah. Okay. And so when did you get married? I got married in 1962. It'll be 60 years this summer. Oh, wow. Congratulations. That's cool. Thank you. Um, That's, uh, we both have to live till August, though. Yeah. There's <laughs> <laughs> that, but yeah. And uh, do you have any children? Yes, I have three sons. Okay. Nice. All right. Cool. Um, so, when you were, when you decided to run, tell me what was it like, uh, you know, running for the Indiana General Assembly? Did you have a particular political outlook or some strategy or? Well, here's the thing. Uh, uh, I did not have, quote, a big organization. Uh, it was nice that if I asked somebody if they could help me do this or that, usually they would. But uh, uh, I know in some areas you have a real nice organization before you start uh, uh, running for office. But it was just me and Ann and what do I do next? And uh, so you had to think it through. Yeah. Uh, uh, I had to know the district. And uh, I knew part of it, of course, but I had to know the district better. And uh, uh, that involved uh, traveling to the different parts of the district. Uh, you know, a legislative district typically is more than one county. And uh, so I would go and meet the Republican county chairman in the different counties and ask uh, who did they think uh, I ought to talk to. And uh, I know in Brown County and in uh, Johnson County, they kind of said, well, we don't pick people in the primary. But uh, if you win the primary, you're our guy. Uh, uh, if I was running for office, I'd see A, B, and C. Yeah. And I asked Richard who I should see in Johnson County because uh, it was becoming more important to the district. Uh, when I left, let's see, Brown County and Johnson County were dang near even with Morgan County in terms of votes. Uh, but anyhow, the... Uh, I got acquainted with a couple of uh, older, I'll say more mature, Republican women in Johnson County, and by golly, they were good, and they were insightful. Yeah. And uh, I asked one of them how she happened to become a Republican. She said, well, my mother, not my father, my mother, because the Republican Party was more receptive to women getting the women to vote than the Democrat Party was at those at that point in time. Interesting. Okay. And as a matter of fact, I once went to a program in Johnson County detailing 
the rise of women in the Republican Party because uh, uh, at that point in time, at least in Indiana, I guess, the Democrats were opposed to women having to vote. Uh, it was opposite of what I thought it, it might have been. But, uh, th these women were, <laughs> they were, nobody was going to tell them what to do. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and uh, they did it. They knew, they knew politics, and they uh, directed me here and there, and uh, that was good. Um, so I had two opponents, one from my own county, and uh, who was a county commissioner, and one from Johnson County, who was a local politician on the township level. And I found out something then. Okay. Uh, that is always true, maybe in life as well as politics. But the uh, enemy of my enemy is my friend. Mm, okay. Uh, I bounced into a couple of people that did not like the candidate uh, that had run-ins of one kind or another with the uh, other candidates and therefore they were motivated to help me more <laughs> sure but uh, I, I developed a map and a plan and uh, uh, in addition to newspaper ads I went into the newspapers were more popular in 1992 <laughs> I went into the classified ads uh, and uh, just to have little classifieds and uh, scattered here and there. So uh, knowing that some people always glance through the classifieds. So in the different categories, I'd have a little ad as well as an ad on, on the radio. Uh, but putting up signs, that seemed to be important. And uh, there's yard signs, and then there's bigger signs. And I had to go on patrol because uh, my bigger signs would disappear. And it would take me a long time to find them in the underbrush or in a ditch. Mm, okay. I eventually got all but one I never did recover. Never did recover. But I did find most of them and put them back up and uh, so on. But a lot of these people were, were good intersections of county roads. And they would say, Nobody ever asked me. They either just assumed or they didn't ask me. You asked me. I appreciate that. Of course you can put the sign. I don't know if I'll vote for you, but you can put the sign up there. Yeah, okay. And usually if somebody wants you to put a sign up, they will vote for you. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense, yeah. Uh, and tell others to, too. So that was important. I knew a guy in southern Indiana, Democrat, and uh, one time I saw, I was going down towards French Lick, and I saw all of these yard signs on both sides of the highway. And uh, I complimented him on it and said, that's a lot of dirt. And he said, I've never asked permission a day in my life. <laughs> he said, I just put them up in a continuous string on both sides of the streets. And he said, 90% uh, of the time, the people uh, won't pull them out. Wow. And, uh, they assume their neighbor did or their 
you know, and I see them across the street, and they just leave <laughs> Oh, my gosh. It gave him the appearance of a lot more support than maybe he... <laughs> you ought to try that, Foley. And I said, no, I don't... I, can't do that. Oh my gosh. Wow. So when, when you were like talking to uh, people about, you know, putting a sign up in their yard or whatever, did you have to like, like tell them like what your campaign was about? I mean, was there, or was it just because, oh, you're from this political party, so that's fine with us? Or were they like, okay, well, what are you about? Like, what are you, what's your issue that you're trying to? Yes. Yes. I had developed a little brochure. And uh, I tried to coordinate all of my campaign stuff, but I had a little brochure with what we would call talking points, and I had four or five uh, talking points, and uh, uh, that's what I would do. Okay. What were uh, some of those the main talking points in your brochure? Oh, let me think. Boy, that was... I haven't... Uh, I'm, I'm sure it was all good government, Ben. Yeah. Uh, but the, uh, I think uh, uh, the the issues that seemed to be some were social issues like right to life. Okay. But uh, that wasn't critical. Uh, I never tried to tell somebody else what they could and couldn't do, but uh, what I was the best. Right. But anyway, the, the, uh, 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 the issues would, I don't know, local government, uh, uh, <laughs> boy, I, you know, uh, you are stumping my memory. <laughs> but I had, uh, I had, I had bullet points. I do know that. Right. I had, five bullet points of uh, things that uh, probably were uh, issues of the day that seemed uh, clear. And I went to every political meeting and uh, made my opponents a little... I started going to every little town, every incorporated town, and asking to come to the town board. And uh, when one of my opponents found out about that, uh, was very upset and uh, started doing the same thing. Okay. <laughs> but uh, trying to tell them that I, I was interested in their lives and in their uh, and in their opinions and in their struggles. Uh, yeah. Small town government has a lot of issues. I'm sure something had to do with uh, criminal law. Uh, okay. I've always been interested in criminal law and was briefly a deputy prosecutor. Yeah. And uh, uh, things like that. Uh, sure. I remember, uh, we didn't. We just had finished redistricting, so some of that was new new ground for my particular seat. Uh, they weren't earth-shaking uh, concepts. Right. But they were common, but how I would execute them and uh, 
thing, things of that nature, I guess, Ben. I sh if I were home, I could probably go to the basement and find that brochure. Yeah, no, no worries. That's not a problem. <laughs> My wife wants me to clean out that stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, thinking about uh, your election to the General Assembly, mm -hmm. um, what was the election process like? Did it seem like a pretty good process and, you know, straightforward or... Well, it was what I expected uh, in, in that, yeah, it's, it was straightforward. Uh, you have to get the votes. Yep. You have to, uh, so we tried to keep count of, uh, uh, have somebody telephone me and tell me how we were doing in the various precincts, and uh, that's what I did. Yeah, okay. Uh, so it was exciting, and I was very gratified to win uh, uh, by a nice margin and so on. Did you uh, think that you were likely to win before the election happened? Hey, well, I hoped I was, but I, I, you can't take it for granted. Yeah. There's no such thing as an unbeatable candidate. Right. No such thing. Uh, that's another lesson Bray taught me. Uh, but... Uh, because he got beat, and I remember that was a shocker, but to me. Yeah. But, uh, uh, he said, oh, don't worry about it, Foley. I just ran one time too many. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I, I kept that in mind. That's another reason I left after 20 years. I thought that was substantial and enough, and uh, it was time to turn the wheel. Yeah, yeah. But I like to think about issues, and I like to... Uh, come to my own conclusion, it led to some success and uh, some failures in the General Assembly. It's, uh, I learned a lot about the General Assembly too late, uh, building consensus, how legislation has to percolate sometimes session after session, so you don't have the patience for it sometimes, but uh, you got to keep, uh, keep at it and you've got to keep trying to uh, the constituencies of support if it's a change. Right, right. And uh, I was not a one that believed in change for change sake for, you know, right. cosmetic. I wanted change to be for a purpose. And uh, thinking through an issue I thought was important uh, and coming to my own conclusion, which is not always... Uh, uh, and instead of just picking up an idea what other states were doing there. Yeah. Uh, mid there's a million ways you can get legislative concept ideas. Everything from constituents to uh, uh, conferences to... Uh, there, there is an important role for lobbyists uh, to, to get you to see a point of view that maybe you overlooked. Yeah. Uh, a facet. And uh, I can give you one big example. Sure. Uh, I tried to look at township government. And township government's motto is we're closest to the people. And it's, in my father's era, township government was extremely important because they ran the schools, the poor relief, 
and they knew their little community, and uh, even the county seat seemed remote. So uh, it was closest to the people, and the people were integrated. Well, townships no longer run the schools, thank goodness. Uh, they only run emergency poor relief, not all poor relief. But their biggest uh, function is fire departments. Okay. And uh, you ask people today, maybe in the uh, 1920s, everybody knew their township government. But unless you're connected with the fire department, you're unlikely to know anything about township government. Yeah. If you, uh, I used to keep a file, no longer, but uh, just clipping out of the newspapers, uh, articles about malfeasance, misfeasance in county government, township government. Uh, it, it is easy for townships to fall into a pattern of unaccountability. And the state board of accounts, uh, We'll never have enough manpower to <laughs> to uh, audit all of them. Right, sure. Uh, we had the, the uh, shepherd, uh, oh my goodness, uh, our lieutenant governor became Joe Kern, uh, the shepherd Kernan or Kernan Shepherd report on reforming government had a big section on township government that interested me. And I thought, boy, that will never uh, go. Let me see if I can reinvent the role of townships. Yeah. And I was beginning to make progress. I was going to make every township trustee in a county board of township trustees. What were they going to do? They were going to have to uh, coordinate and approve the placement of fire departments, the physical buildings, uh, so that we could make sure that every area of the county, the most prosperous township will have the biggest and best township fire department, and uh, the least prosperous township will be struggling to get a 20-year-old pumper truck, you know. Okay, right? yeah. And uh, so they would have to... Uh, agree by some margin to the placement of fire halls and uh, fire department equipment and it would be more of a county-wide levy rather than a township levy. Uh, we've had the phenomena of townships uh, having separate fire departments within a short distance of each other, a mile away. Wow. And then other areas, and we've had uh, a lot of <laughs> a lot of conflict with uh, within fire departments and jealousy over territory and so on. And in the smaller townships, it is the key of, or they don't. Maybe they don't have a school anymore. Maybe they don't even have a neighborhood church anymore. But they do have a neighborhood fire hall, and they're proud of it, and they're volunteers, and so on. So you don't want to destroy that uh, sense of community. Yeah. But you have to be rational. And the other thing is they say, well, our rate is so small. Well, it is. It's small, and nobody notices it. But it still adds up to money within the township. 
and that money can be uh, funding uh, every fire department member's personal uh, gas, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, it can be wasted in 10 different ways uh, and misspent. So I was going to have the fire department, I was going to have the township budget uh, approved by the uh, county council. So they would have to submit and justify a budget. Therefore, they'd have to balance uh, the uh, <laughs> their books, <laughs> even on years when the state board of accounts didn't do it for them. <laughs> oh, wow. And uh, so on. I remember we had a township trustee one time that uh, left the st uh, boyfriend or whatever, but left the state and was still getting paid her salary and she said well i still have a house in morgan county and uh, there's not a damn thing you can do about it i'm an elected official yeah nobody keeps my hours wow so uh but there were other abuses of uh inappropriate use of the money or just something that seemed like a good idea at the time and not appropriating it and not going through their board and uh, treating it as a personal piggy bank fund. And, yeah. Uh, we got to get away from that. They're, they're not the closest to the people. They're most obscured to the people. They may know who a county commissioner is, but they wouldn't know who's on the township advisory board under torture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I that that, uh, and uh, I've discovered there's more than one township association in Indiana. So, I went to both the associations. I think there may be even three, but I went to two the main lobbyists and uh, tried to make presentations to their board and trying to portray this as an alternative to total abolishment, which some people thought was reasonable, and uh, they may have been right, but I was trying to preserve the institution and a role for the institution. Sure. But I didn't spend enough years uh, working that thing. Uh, if I had another two or three terms, maybe I could have gotten it done. But okay. Uh, I still think that it was time for me to exit stage left yeah yeah i understand um so when you were serving in the indiana general assembly um how did you sort of keep track of everything your constituents wanted what was your method for doing that keeping track well uh if they if constituents came sometimes one of the good examples is educators, teachers. Yeah. Uh, and they came through their, not only individually, but through their organization. So you could talk to their representative in the state house, and uh, it was clearly, their agenda was clearly presented to you. Uh, the agenda of all kinds of other groups of citizens was presented to you through their organizations. And then other than that, from churches to educators to occupations to all kinds of things. And then the uh, individuals 
would have issues and they contact you individually and uh, so therefore you had to have some policy about if they issues fell into a common category abortion or whatever yeah or race or gambling that was always a good one uh you would uh, have kind of uh, prepared responses. Now, what you did, I I didn't have maybe an enormous volume. I thought it was enormous, but maybe compared to some, it wasn't. But I wanted to make sure everybody was acknowledged. I didn't always get that done. Yeah. Uh, and in those times, our staffing was shorthanded. Uh, I came in in the minority, and we had fewer staff people anyway. And uh, then uh, we, even in the majority, I uh, didn't have a solo staff person. They always shared with other people. So uh, I, I tried to return phone calls if I could, uh, but at least acknowledge and uh, acknowledge uh letters and uh, other communications from individuals. Sometimes they presented a uh, good issue that I would try to uh, incorporate in some sort of legislative format. And sometimes it was uh, hard to explain that a totally radical concept would not go in. You just don't file a bill and then bam. Right. You get and a vote. Yeah. Uh, it's not common, but sometimes you would file a bill for the purpose of satisfying a constituent with less uh, enthusiasm over seeing it through. Yeah. Because I, I found that, and if uh, uh, this is what I admired in several other legislators, I usually had more than one thing on my mind, and therefore uh, energy was dissipated, you might say. Uh, but some people would devote single-minded interest to one issue for several sessions, and by golly, they usually had the better success when they did that. Sure. Uh, but I... Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed that process. It takes you a moment or two, Ben, to understand, and this is local government is sometimes terrible at this, but to be able to express yourself in a public meeting, you know, we have a committee meeting, and there's 10 people around the table, and a chairman or whatever the number is, and uh, this concept is being talked about, and you have people in the audience on every side of the issue possible. And uh, on sites you didn't even know were in the thing. You thought it was a square and it's a hexagon. Right. But, uh, you had to be able to express yourself candidly to the other committee members, and you had to speak up so that the people in the audience understood what you were saying. You couldn't go back in and just whisper across the table. And I, I saw that several times, people whispering across the table. You have to get over that inhibition 
And uh, I know I didn't, I was inhibited in my first several committee meetings. You know, even though I was no youngster, I was still a freshman. Yeah, sure. And, uh, uh, it took a little while to get used to speaking your mind in front of people without inhibition. Yeah. You need some inhibition to keep you from cutting off your nose to spite your face, but yeah. you need uh, some discretion. But at any rate, there you go. Uh, you have to be able to express yourself publicly uh, without being inhibited about what others may or may not think. Yeah. If that's your viewpoint and that's the change you want to direct, you've got to do something about it. Yeah, okay. Um, thinking about uh, some legislation, what was the first bill that you sponsored? Do you remember? No. Okay, that's <laughs> okay. Remember. Always an interesting... No. Let, oh. me, let me amend this. Yeah. Uh, it sometimes is easy to be a co-sponsor or a co-author of legislation. Yeah. Uh, but... I am assuming, without evidence, I am assuming that you are able to, uh, that you are thinking about something that was my initiative. Well, yeah, I mean, it could be... My solo initiative, yeah. and uh, then I attracted others and so on. Yeah, it can, it can be something that you authored instead of just sponsoring. Either way, just sometimes people have like a distinctive memory about their yes. first bill, um, but so a lot of people also have just no idea because it wasn't something that stuck out to them. So just kind of well, depends. Uh, I was always moving on to the next thing. Yeah, sure. No, uh, understandable. I came in in the minority. It would be extremely rare for a minority member, freshman minority member, to pass to get legislation passed in that chamber. Yeah. Uh, without some sort of big assist and uh, I was able to get uh, uh, co-sponsor legislation that interested me that I felt comfortable promoting. For example, I was a small town lawyer and uh, dealt with probate and real estate. So when I had probate and real estate issues, uh, I uh, came up to the bat. And the other thing is, it's dull as pond water, but I was always interested in technical corrections. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, uh, therefore, I, there was a time I was chairman of rules and uh, found the political component of rules, but uh, uh, it, is, uh, it was a wonderful exercise also. But uh, uh, Phil, uh, let's see... Uh, Gutwein is retiring this year, Doug Gutwein, and he used to say when I got up to speak, he went out for a smoke. <laughs> okay. But it was, it was what he was talking about really was technical corrections or code revision. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. Reorganizing the code. Yeah. And I wanted to understand the process and then talking to the professionals that prepared that work. I wanted to understand any change and what it meant 
and I wanted to hit the highlights so nobody could be blindsided and said, I never knew that was in the bill, that was a trick. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the presenters of, uh, I mean, the, the professional staff that did that work uh, was... Uh, uh, so invested in that, you also had to appreciate their uh, product, so to speak. Yeah. Okay. And uh, but that that so I I think the first legislation that I ever was uh, invested in was uh, probate or real estate, uh, and then uh, assisted in the technical corrections and as a Republican member and later as the uh, lead uh, when we were in the majority. But yeah. Okay. Those meetings. Um, uh, I, was, I was in the probate and real estate section of the State Bar Association. Before the legislature, I was uh, active in the State Bar Association in their sections and, and uh, held office and I was on the Board of Governors and Let's see, as uh, secretary or treasurer and counsel to the president and things like that. Right, right. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so thinking about, like, the, the interactions amongst different members of the General Assembly, um, what were the, the regular interactions like between different members, both formal and informal? Did everyone seem to get along pretty well? Were there... Uh, or was it kind of shaky at times? What was it like? Well, there's always key political issues, yep. uh, Democrat or Republican, and that would cause a stark division of the House. But other than that, uh, Ben, I've, I know that there's this anti-lobbyist sentiment, including my own constituents. Yeah. Uh, misunderstanding their role, but we used to have some uh, uh, dinners or receptions that uh, included both Democrats and Republicans, and it's one way you got acquainted with uh, people across the aisle and found out they were human beings, too. Sure. Uh, I served a little bit on uh, labor, a very contentious committee. Uh, I could have made a career of it, uh, I mean, uh, you know, and, and became the Republican chairman when we were, but uh, that wasn't my key interest. But nevertheless, the most disruptive, union, bombastic legislator uh, on the other side, and I went to lunch one time and ended up liking each other. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, I think as we've cracked down uh, uh, on these uh, on these things, on the abuse of lobbying and uh, the public outrage at going to a dinner or reception, we have fewer and fewer of those, and uh, there are fewer opportunities for people to know the people on the other side of the aisle. Yeah. And, uh, for example, the state, uh, the state cafeteria used to have a table where uh, both 
I could sit, both Democrats and Republicans sat there and uh, chided each other and joked and uh, ate and uh, found out they were human beings too with some of the same struggles. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I thought that was very collegiate. I think there are fewer opportunities to develop that uh, civility of collegiality in the General Assembly today. There are fewer opportunities. Uh, we used to, when I was chair of different committees, we would have uh, solicit lobbyists, or sometimes they volunteered, to take us all out to dinner, both Democrats and Republicans. And it was team building, if you will. And uh, there was always some issues that we could uh, get along with. And, uh, for example, in courts and criminal code, which I was active in, was the, uh, was, uh, you know, you, you would like to think that that was uh, uh, something that we could agree on. And, nor, you know, we on work on together. And, uh, but those uh, meetings at the beginning of the session where you sat down together and broke bread uh, often paid great dividends in collegiality and civility and the understanding of an opposite viewpoint, whether or not you supported it. Sure. You know, uh, and uh, it may not change and it made it easier uh for example when i was chairing a committee you you have subtle control over any amendment that may be proposed and uh but we found that on courts and criminal code we could work collegiately on those kinds of amendments and we could discard the more controversial or uh, uh, sidetrack amendments yeah and uh, I think, I hope it's institutionalized. If I did anything at all, it was uh, trying to prevent ad hoc floor amendments on criminal code. In other words, when once the bill gets on the floor, anybody can offer an amendment. And often, uh, particularly a minority person, would bring up an amendment that... Uh, you know, Susie's Law or something like that in their home community. They might be mad at a prosecutor for not prosecuting. They might be mad at a judge for an in, what they regarded as an improper sentence. So they wanted to fix it by compelling the result they wanted by legislation. And uh, nobody on the floor wanted to vote against Susie's Law. Right. Okay. Uh, and it wasn't vetted. We don't know how it fit into the code or how other sections may need to be changed. And it was a mishmash and a misfit. And what we tried to do is amendments to criminal code that are not vetted, not produced in committee or in summer study committee uh, to get away from offering them on the floor, just not accepting them that way. Uh, so we would ask the presenter, was this submitted to committee? No. Was this submitted to summer study? No. Can't support it. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. But, uh, we had, uh, or at least I'd like to think that I was, uh, uh important in building up that kind of a process. 
Yeah, okay. And so you mentioned kind of how uh, there was a time where there was a lot more, I guess, interactions between yeah, different members from different political parties than... Um, I guess today, probably. Um, yeah, it seems to be today. Yeah, so why do you think that changed? Well, what happened to that relationship? Well, in, in, in part, uh, maybe the party got more strident, but uh, in part it was reform, uh, trying to eliminate uh, uh, what is the good citizen groups, you know, like... Uh, lead women voters, but not that. The uh, Julia, uh, I can't think of the name of the good government group that she uh, represents, but they wanted reforms. They wanted, uh, uh, and people agreed to it. I mean, it, it appealed to the general public that there's undue influence of lobbyists, that they uh, are... Uh, uh, bribing the legislators and blah, blah, blah. And so they, uh, lobbyists are no longer sponsoring as many cross uh, the big social events that they used to. Yeah. Uh, the, the, those receptions and things, I'm sure they're still there, but they're not they're not as many or not as frequent, and I don't know if the little dinners for starting the session and the various committees are still there, uh, but uh, it's my understanding that a lot of that is fading or faded. Sure. And uh, parties have taken a more uh, sharper edge and less centralist in some ways. Okay. Uh, I've always been interested in civility, and, uh, you know, I was the first president of ARMIGA, the association that retired members of the Indiana General Assembly, and <clears throat> the purpose of that, we're, we think we're unique. We don't think there's any others in the nation, but uh, uh, the idea of the association is to, pr is to promote civility. Yeah. And we try to recognize the Democrat and Republican in each chamber for uh, exhibiting civility over the term of two years. Okay, wow. So, uh, and we try to do that function and we try to promote that in ways that we can. We don't think often that the press is interested in it for some reason. That's interesting. They seem to be more interested in the divisions than they are in civility. That's my viewpoint. <laughs> yeah, wow. Yeah, that's that's pretty wild. News, uh, we getting along is not news, but we fighting each other is yeah. news. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's wild, okay. And, uh, it is wild, and uh, I think there's some truth to that. that it, uh, yeah. Oh, gosh. Can't think of Julia's organization. Uh, citizens, not Citizens United, but one of those citizen groups. And sometimes the, the purity, you know, they want to wash away... Uh, 
the reality of politics being people and uh, uh, the purity uh, can never be, uh, you know, we're, we're never going to have a chamber of 100 altruistic people marching along singing Kumbaya. Right. But we're humans and we have different viewpoints and we will associate with those viewpoints. Look, Ben, we have the supermajorities now, and it, if you have a supermajority, then the party in the majority tends to break into factions. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I'll tell you, when I came in in the minority, the minority was unusually united, because <laughs> that's all we had. It took a while for me to figure out how to get things done anyway. Yeah, interesting. Uh, now you've been involved with some organizational work with you know uh, sort of uh, I guess former legislators, right? With Armiga. Yeah, the former legislators uh, association of retired members of Indiana General Assembly was uh, born by uh, a Democrat ex legislator and. Uh, interested in uh, lobbying and organizations and uh, we again uh, it's not we try to have a socialization once a year uh, we advertise uh, to the legislators at any rate that we're an organization without a center aisle yeah there is no division. Whether you're a Democrat or Republican, you ran for office and you have commonality in that. You served in the General Assembly and you ought to have respect for that. Right. Yeah. So. You're entitled to different opinions, but you're not entitled to calling the SOB an SOB. Yeah, sure. <laughs> he knows it and you know it. She knows it and you know it. Right. Yeah, so I guess in a way, yeah, it's it's interesting because it's kind of uh, because so many people talk about political polarization today, and yet that organization kind of represents you know kind of the opposite of being polarized, but rather coming together. Um, well, we're not we're not supporting. You know, I'm not in there uh, pro life. You're not in there pro choice. Right. We're in there saying, boy, was we shared a battle, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. Just the civility aspect. Yeah. 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 Uh, Interesting. Sometimes somebody will tell war stories that are hilarious. Sometimes they have some truth to them. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's the truth as I remember it. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Um, let's see. So we talked about kind of some of the differences that were going on uh, between different members, but what were the differences between the House and Senate? Well, that's an interesting dynamic. Uh, uh, the, uh, the House, uh, both these and ours, uh, always felt like, uh, uh, well, the proverbial redheaded stepchild. We, we, always felt slighted somewhat by the Senate, and that the, the Senate uh, 
proud of themselves and uh, would butcher perfectly good legislation for perfectly bad reasoning. And uh, uh, so we always felt happy to survive the Senate and have something become law. But uh, uh, generally speaking, though, uh, House members had their favorite senators. It may be their own uh, personal senator, but their go-to person for the types of legislation they wanted to support. Okay. And if you were supporting an education bill you wanted to be friendly with, and uh, in spite of that little edge that House members in caucus or, or even on the floor would insult the Senate as an institution, but uh, they really didn't mean it. They they work together on uh, important legislation, with, and we always think it's important, but they worked on that important legislation, uh, the two chambers, through the two leads, you know, the lead senator and the lead house guy, and uh, you tried to line up a senator for your legislation, and senators tried to line up house members for their legislation. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and uh, when people were voting on legislation, did you always have a pretty good idea of how people would vote on a bill, or was it more, some bills were kind of a guessing game, or? Well, they, there's, as I mentioned before, there's always some piece of legislation that is politically defining, and uh, I, I don't know, I'll, I'll say redistricting. Uh, but that's politically defining, and uh, Democrats are going to have one view, and Republicans are going to have one view, and they're going to clash. Uh, and that does produce, tend to produce more u unity among the two caucuses. Yeah. Uh, they have a, a very, when you have a supermajority, it's very hard to have a caucus bind. When you have a minority, it is easier to have a caucus bind, that is, that you vote in lockstep because that's the only way you can express your your power, your your ability to influence events. And uh, so there's a dynamic. Uh, sure. Yeah. And it's organic, I guess. Yeah, makes sense. Um, now, how influential was party leadership to getting legislation passed? Was it, uh, you know, did you ever go against party leadership or was it pretty much you had to kind of go, you know, if you didn't get their approval, then you kind of couldn't do anything? Well, I'll say this, that uh, you either wanted leadership support or, or at least benign indifference. Uh, that is, it made no difference to leadership. Leadership is interested in their goals. Leadership always has an agenda, both Democrats and Republicans. They have their talking points that they want to achieve this session. Yeah. And they are going to, by golly, achieve that come hell or high water, so, or try. And uh, it's harder in the minority, so you end up being resistant to things. But leadership, otherwise, uh, there's the 
committee chairs will meet with their leaders, or the committee ranking members with their minority leader. But the committee chairs meet with their leadership, and they tell them what's happening in their committee that the chairman feels is uh, appropriate to go forward. And the leadership in their the leader's inner circle or whoever his advisors are, he has his own counsel, a lawyer, he has his own uh, legislative policy people, and they'll discuss it as to whether that uh, is opposed to their agenda, fits their agenda, or makes no difference to their agenda. If you cross the leader uh, terribly, it is hard to get a Moving anything moving, right? Yeah, yeah. To be oblique, yeah. Uh, if, if you're intending to cross them, but you also got to remember that if you double cross a leader, uh, you stand grave danger of uh, simply uh, being an ornament. Yeah, I've seen guys who've gotten in big doo-doo with their leadership that on the phone and in constituent mailings, you would think they were the most important person in the General Assembly. When nobody knew that they were the most worthless person in the General Assembly, they couldn't get, you know, uh, they couldn't get sunshine passed. <laughs> okay. Wow. Uh, they were pariah within, but uh, their constituents were not aware of that pariah, and, and they would vote for bills, uh, and then they could brag about they supported this bill or that. Yeah. Then it takes away your ability to vote. Yeah, okay. Your ability to be influential in, in pressing legislation. Right. Um, I don't know. Some of my committees, I guess, were dull. Uh, judiciary, which dealt with a lot of legal issues, uh, courts and criminal code, uh, rules. I had a lot of fun with rules uh, time or two, uh, particularly when I was in the minority baiting the, uh, the uh, opposite leader. <laughs> yeah. uh, usually ended up becoming fond of them. Okay. Uh, thinking about the legislation uh, during your time that you served, what was the most controversial legislative issue you think uh, when you served in the General Assembly? Oh, I stuck my nose where it shouldn't belong in a number of things. Uh, I tried to reform the Judicial Nominating Commission. Boy, that went like a rock in a pond. Okay. And uh, leadership wasn't happy with that one either. Uh, I tried to uh, reform township government. Uh, it's hard to get cross uh, cross aisle support on some of those things because it's easier for them to curry favor with the township organization saying, I stood up against this bad legislation fully presented. I uh, had... Uh, I've tried to, well, I guess I've tried reform more than once. Uh, tried to uh, 
do the criminal code, but uh, most of the legislation that I uh, was able to pass was, uh, I thought, fairly uh, easy for anyone on either side of the aisle, but uh, you're not going to get unanimity very often, so yeah, always people who were opposed to it for one reason or another. Right, right. Who knows? Uh, so, when you're in the majority, you have the opportunity to present more legislative initiatives than you do in the minority. In the minority, you have the opportunity to make whatever legislation is being presented better. Yeah. In other words, when I was in the minority uh, on a court on a criminal law or uh, probate real estate or uh, commercial law, uh, we tried to uh, uh, make whatever was presented uh, better better suited to Indiana. See, I served on. Uh, <coughs> I was also a commissioner for uniform law in the United States. And as an Indiana commissioner for uniform law, uh, got to uh, work on uh, legislation throughout uh, the country, you might, to inspire throughout the country and uh, make things better. Uh, best example is the one I always cite at any rate is the Uniform Commercial Code. Without that, my golly, we would be back in the colonial <laughs> colonial history. With, instead of an integrated society, uh, an integrated business community that we have today, yeah, with common rules of commerce. But uh, at any rate, that that uh, presented me with opportunities to present uh, legislation, and uh, I often did. Uh, uh, so, uniform law, courts, uh, well, criminal code, civil code were primary areas of uh, my interest, and perhaps not as controversial as, for example, some of the education things and some of the labor things. And, yeah. You know, they weren't exactly third rail issues. But when I break, broke out on my own, sometimes I had to make it clear that the governor had nothing to do with my legislation. He may or may not sign it if it passes, but it isn't his initiative, it's mine. Right. And, People sometimes subscribe to you motives that you never even thought of uh, or uh, connect dots that aren't even visible. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. Uh, I mean, it matters. Don't get me wrong that way. I'm not being dismissive. Uh, but Sure. Uh, it, it, it is human nature and real life. That's yeah. the name of that. Now, yeah, from what I read when I was doing some research on you and stuff before the interview, I mean, it, <laughs> it sounded like uh, that you, you, you know, despite, you know, controversial things that may have been going on when you served, it sounded like you had a, a big interest in trying to, trying to work 
across party lines and, and uh, you know, focus on bipartisanship. What, what made you so interested in that? Coming in the minority. Yeah. Uh, people that were elected in the supermajority and never knew anything except being in the majority think all their ideas are brilliant <laughs> because they're brilliant. Uh, it isn't because they're brilliant, it's because they're in the majority they get to be able to present it even though they're as dumb as a rock. <laughs> uh, so when you come in the minority, it humbles you to understand, well, now, wait a minute. If I talk to John Gregg across the aisle and get him convinced that this is a uh, benign but good government change to probate law, uh, perhaps we can get something done, so. Yeah, yeah. But you come in the minority, you have to think and not react, and too much of it is reaction, but you gotta think and don't automatically oppose things. Sure. Don't automatically put people in a box. And even if it's your uh, sworn enemy, in some committee meeting, you might be able to find common ground on something. Yeah. And it may be important to you. It's, it's no fun to have every single one of your bills only supported by your party. How can you brag about that? Right, yeah, that's a good point, yeah. So I guess coming in in the minority at first kind of, I guess, humbled you and made you understand what that's like and... And, uh, yep. yeah. and how do you get something done anyway? Right. And how do you learn to not just sit silently at a committee meeting, but to contribute to that committee meeting and speak up in front of strangers and other people? Yeah. You, you feel like your flies unzipped and people are, you know, you don't know what to, you're inhibited. Uh, but you got to get over that and speak. Uh, if you want to be of an influence in that uh, in that way, I always had an opinion. That's one of my bad points. Yeah. So, do you think with uh, the General Assembly today that there's just uh, there's a lot less interest then because there's a supermajority and, and trying to get support from the other party in a bill where they just feel like it doesn't really matter anymore. Well, I think there's some of that, yes. I okay. Think that's, uh, and the other thing is I have a lot more sympathy for leaders, uh, both <laughs> the minority are frustrated, they feel like they're spitting in the wind, uh, but the majority are frustrated. They have to be because they have to keep uh, enough of the Indians on the reservation to prevent war. Uh, in other words, uh, the more in your caucus, the more that you could fraction and uh, the more that you were emboldened uh, to uh, do something else. Sure. For example, if you had 51 votes, you can't afford to lose any. But if you have 60 votes, yeah, John can go vote that way and Susie can vote that way. Eh, that doesn't make any difference. <sighs> right. Okay. 
I also saw that some legislation you worked on was like about trying to, I guess, ban smoking in public places. Is that correct? Well, I uh, I used to smoke, so therefore I'm opposed to smoking. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, uh, I was proud of my county being uh, uh, one of the leaders in uh, banning smoking in public places. Interesting. Okay. So, when the good old the good old boys in Morgan County uh, uh, drinking whiskey and rye, American pie, but yeah. <laughs> at any rate, uh, the good old boys uh, banned smoking in public places. I thought that's good. Yeah. I would. I I don't see anything wrong with that. Right. Uh, you're, yes, you have your individual freedom. Yes, you can, even members of my family. But uh. um, I saw another one was like uh, about, so I read something about you were involved with some legislation on, I guess, lobbyist gift and entertainment ban of some sort. Mm-hmm. What was that about? Well, uh, <laughs> they're, uh, they're, they, I don't oppose to an organization for uh, giving a legislator a trinket or uh, something like that. That's, uh, that, to me, does not corrupt a legislator. Uh, but uh, uh, when you abuse that, and you give them a trip to the Bahamas or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we have to be very, very careful with industries like gaming. Uh, and uh, some people are uh, weaker influenced, uh, weaker threshold than others. Uh, I won't say ever that I have more integrity than somebody else. But I will say that I wasn't tempted uh, by things that other people may have been tempted by. I've seen shiny things. I don't need to. <laughs> right. So, yes, I, 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 I don't want corruption. And, but it's hard sometimes, Ben, to find the line between uh, just acknowledging and uh, corruption. Sure. So that's the job. Yeah. Okay. Let's see. Um, so thinking about your, I guess, some reflections on your service in the General Assembly, um, how, how difficult was it to, to manage your service in the General Assembly as well as your family life? Uh, now you, you, uh, it is difficult. And uh, some legislators feel compelled uh, because of the competitiveness of their district or something to devote even more time and energy to being, quote, a representative or a senator, state representative or senator. Yeah. Some states support uh, their legis state legislators with home offices and uh, home staff and all of that. That's to me, going a little bit too far. Uh, 
uh, I don't mind if somebody comes up to me in Walmart or Kroger's or wherever, uh, as long as they don't accost me. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, uh, uh, they, uh, let me get back stronger to the point. Help me, Ben. I'm going around the corner. There. Yeah. Yeah. No worries. Just talk about like, you know, how'd you manage the family life? Oh, yeah. Uh, family life is difficult. I, I, my children were substantially raised. I felt sorry for those who had small children. Uh, yeah. Uh, because they neglected. I'd gone to a lot of their games and things like that, and uh, but I missed out. And the other thing you, you miss out on, Ben, uh, uh, that is outsiders would not put in the equation, but you miss out socializing with your own uh, friends and your own uh, groups, your church or whatever, your own charities. It's tough to get those things done. Right. And uh, I found that it was, uh, a friend would invite my wife and I over for cards or dinner or whatever. I could go, but it was hard for us to host because I was either gone or doing something. Yeah. And uh, some people resented that, and uh, I'm sorry, but uh, I haven't made up for it either. <laughs> right. <laughs> Anyhow, I think it does. There, there is a sacrifice, and I found that uh, I had an economic sacrifice. Some people assumed because I was a lawyer, somehow I made money off the General Assembly, and it's not true. Yeah, uh, I was unable to serve my clients effectively, and I lost clients. I lost work because of the General Assembly. Sure. Now, if I had a big office, maybe they could have picked up the slack, but I never did. I wasn't, a, you know, one of the big downtown lawyers. Right, right. So, how would you summarize your time overall, then, as a state legislator? Well, I learned to love the institution of the legislature and the people that populate it on either side of the aisle, uh, I have a great deal more respect for state government than I ever did before and how it operates and what its challenges are. It's a, it's a wonderful thing, and I, I hope that we keep an element of citizen legislators. There's too many that think that we ought to professionalize the legislation, legislators and then you will see it exponentially explode into these regional offices and home offices and staff here and staff there, blah, blah. But I, I really loved it, and I loved my, it was a highlight. It came to me at a right time in my life, and uh, uh, I just treasured the time I spent there. Yeah, okay. Very important. Do you have a, a favorite story from your time as a legislator? <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, John Gregg was Speaker of the House and a Democrat and a wild man to some ways and a good friend. And uh, we had some traffic bill, and I had an amendment. 
on the floor of the house doing what I tell you is not good practice. But I have been annoyed in traffic commuting to Indianapolis and driving around my district time and time again, with the, and I still am, with, except when I forget, the failure to use turn signals. So I had this cockamamie joke amendment uh, about uh, criminalizing the failure to use turn signals okay. and, uh, and increasing the penalty as you got older. Now I'm 81. I don't think it's as funny as I did. But, I, for example, I would say if you're over 75, then the fine is doubled and you're in prison for a month or something. So failure to use turn signals. And I got on uh, up at the stand and the rostrum and made my little comments on the uh, legislature and got some giggles and made my point that we have a lot of traffic laws that cannot be enforced but should be enforced or should be something we do for other people because we can't read minds. And, uh, and then, as you can do, as the legislator said, Mr. Speaker, I withdraw my amendment. John Gregg said, Representative Foley, I didn't hear you. And I said, I'll speak up. I withdraw my amendment. And he said, I didn't hear you. Close the board. Oh, no. <laughs> so they closed the board, and somebody even pushed my button red. So I had a hundred, and the speaker voted against me. I had a hundred no votes. <laughs> and he, he says, you now have the record for the biggest defeat in legislative history in the state of Indiana. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, so I got a lot of laughs and a lot of ridicule over that. And uh, uh, John had his fun. you got to have some fun. For gosh sakes, you can't run it like a morgue. Right. Yeah, that's right. It'd be a pretty miserable place then, yeah. And, and I'll tell you some other insight. Once we started filming uh, that is videotaping, you know, uh, putting on live online all of the committee meetings and the General Assembly, the humor started was stamped down. The inside jokes were stamped down because it was it could be embarrassing Yeah. Uh, to make a joke uh, or people would think you're serious or something. So uh, it made it the environment less uh, flexible and less, uh, I don't know, less flexible and less humorous. Sure. And you need the humor once in a while to break the tension. Right, yeah. Understandable. Yeah, particularly bad day in the legislature and people are going at it. You need somebody to put up an amendment for failure to use turn signals. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, what lessons did you learn from your experience in the General Assembly? As I told you, I learned lessons on how uh, how organically the uh, a legislator a legislature functions, how 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 it moves, how the challenges of the speaker and the leader, the minority leader, what those challenges are, uh, how the uh, some of the offices in state government 
operate and move and uh, how hard it is to turn the boat around sometimes. It doesn't turn on a dime. Uh, and how to understand a different point of view. Uh, I, I valued the friendships across the aisle and across other barriers. Yeah. So for me, it was a broadening, uh, life-changing experience that uh, I felt very privileged and uh, grateful to have had. Sure. Um, well, it changed me. It did. It did change me. Changed both of us. Yeah. Yeah, I, I bet. My wife learned to smile at unhappy people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Yeah. Okay. Do you have any uh, regrets about your experience? Yeah. Uh, I regret that sometimes when I had very, very, in my view, been according to me, I was telling you about people's viewpoints, but according to me, in my wisdom, I thought I had a very good uh, legislative concept, and I never quite got the hang of building the support. I was too impatient. So uh, my, my advice to people would be, you've got to be patient. If you think it's a really worthy idea, you've got to build support for it. This is one thing that is bad about term limits. It fails to allow uh, everything has to be instantaneous or it won't be done. Yeah. Uh, but th this fails to uh, uh, allow an idea to mature and become viable. It also allows an idea to... <laughs> to uh, deteriorate and go away. <laughs> right. Yeah. Is there a prop was there like a proudest moment that you had in the general assembly? Uh, finishing on time. <laughs> no, <laughs> there yes, uh I I shouldn't say no. Uh, I was Yes, I'm, I was proud to be able to have what I considered to be uh, meaningful legislation and when something would pass, that uh, feeling of accomplishment uh, is pride, I guess. And uh, So I was proud when we were able to do things that I thought made the world a little better or our world a little better or our society to function a little better. I was proud of the reforms in criminal law. They haven't always worked as desired. Uh, you know, I was proud of some improvements in, uh, in uh, commercial law due to uh, being a member of uh, the uh, Uniform Law Commission. Uh, you know, you, what, what you do Ben, is you go on to the next thing. And sometimes uh, that feeling of accomplishment, uh, you don't savor it because you got to go on to the next thing. you got to keep moving. you got to go. Right. Uh, that, to me, uh, blurred 
the one shining moment uh, because there was always an, another thing I needed to do I felt compelled to work on. Yeah, makes sense. One little bill, one little bill uh, I've always been grateful for. It's, uh, it's okay to say I'm sorry. Uh, the tort law, personal injury law, uh, accidents, and medical yeah. accidents, and things like that. People are afraid uh, involved in that to say I'm sorry. People are afraid to say to the victim, I regret this happened, uh, or I'm sorry for your pain because it's taken as an admission of guilt and slammed right into your face. Wow. So I passed legislation that it's not an admission of guilt and it's okay, for example, a doctor who had a bad result to go up to the patient, hold the patient's hand and say, I'm sorry it turned out that way. Uh, I really regret it. And sometimes you see a victim in court will say, if they had only told me that they were sorry it happened, I wouldn't have filed this lawsuit. And uh, I got one letter after that legislation, one letter from uh, my old retired general practitioner at home who was living in a in a retirement community in Marion County to be closer to kids, Bill Winter, and Bill died this year at the age of 95, but he wrote me a tender letter uh, of praise and appreciation for being able to say I'm sorry without the fear that it would be taken as an admission of liability. Wow, yeah. Because you do everything by the book and sometimes you have a bad result and sometimes you skip the step that's true but by god you ought to be able to say i'm sorry it happened yeah yeah let's see uh what advice would you give to future legislators or even current legislators patience Understand that it's a mighty thin pancake without two sides, as Rex Early used to say. Yeah, okay. Uh, understand that there's another viewpoint. Try not to take it personally. Uh, try to find something you like about the other person. Sure. Um, uh, one of my... There was a young bachelor on the Democrat side, and he married one of my assistants <laughs> on the Republican side. Okay. <laughs> Something in common. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, try to not miss. Uh, but, uh, you know, good golly, uh, we're all human beings, and uh, uh, civility, civility, civility. Sense of humor, sense of humor. Sometimes it got me in trouble, but I always, uh, I guess it's the Irish hippie. Yeah, you have to be patient. You have to have a sense of humor. You've got to understand that there are different perspectives that are valid. Yeah. Maybe there's something you should know. 
Yeah, um, yeah, that all makes sense to me. Um, what, in your in, in your opinion, is the most important work of the Indiana General Assembly? The most, uh, well, you have the uh, obvious things that are the most important to get a budget. Yep. To do no harm. Uh, so the important thing in the General Assembly is to keep government uh, working uh, in the ways that it's supposed to work. Uh, you know, you have a Bureau of Motor Vehicles. What can you do to make that more uh, user-friendly? I tell you, it is world change from when I first came in, and it's a world change for the better. Yeah. Uh, it's much, much better and much more professionalized. Uh, the, the, the purpose of the General Assembly is to keep the state of Indiana working towards its goals and, and is an efficient and uh, a manner and a fair manner as possible. We, we have, you know, the government functions to build roads and schools, yes, but they also to build rules for how we get along so that we don't have uh, duels in the alley and sword fights in the streets. Uh, uh, We have to have a a civil society as a society that abides by certain universal rules or codes of conduct. And they're not always black and white. You know, you could say the Ten Commandments, but then the devil's in the details. <laughs> sure, sure. So they're, they're continuously working to fund the government at a reasonable rate and to do the functions of government, uh, make government function. My constituent complaints were usually about, I can't get a response from the Bureau or the department or they're running roughshod over my farm or my business. And you say, well, let's see how that works. Yeah. The business of the General Assembly is to make government work and to fund it in a cost-effective way as possible. Right. They always say the budget, the budget, the budget. And the short session is to just fix what ails, not to start new initiatives. But we start new initiatives in the short session anymore. And uh, then that makes people want more session. But I don't know. Yeah, understandable. Um, Now, I know when a lot of people think about the General Assembly, or just really politics in general, um, historically, a lot of people will talk about like um, you know, how big of a role is money in politics or gerrymandering. Throughout your career, um, how influential was money in politics and gerrymandering in terms of affecting the dynamics of the General Assembly? Well, uh, the gerrymandering 
you can say uh, has been practiced by all parties, that's yeah. true. But it's gotten more sophisticated in the sense that we have more data now by uh, little census blocks and so on, and we try to make districts compact and uh, common interest and not divide uh, a community. So it's got, excuse me, Ben, it's gotten easy. It's gotten not easier, but it's gotten better. And uh, gerrymandering uh, is one aspect that may affect a seat here and there, but the overall wave is uh, more uh, important. In other words, if there's a statewide sweep of the state ticket, that's going to affect who is elected locally. A lot of people do separate their local legislator from the political parties, it's true. Some of them, uh, more of them are running and it's hard to find a political symbol on their literature or party. Uh, and you don't even casually, you might not know they're a Democrat or a Republican. But, right. Uh, so they're trying to avoid that, and they're trying to have people identify with them as a person rather than as a party. But what happens on the state level or national level does influence what happens in the General Assembly and who gets what seat. It is a local, and I, I don't want to distract from that or diminish it. it is, I was locally elected and uh, probably could have sustained a Democrat wave, probably because of the demographics of my district and because I had some support from in the November elections from Democrats as well as Republicans, but uh, not enough maybe, but what I'm trying to say is that sometimes the statewide or national trend overcomes gerrymandering or washes it away. Sure. And you can't, uh, you can't, uh, you can't uh, at any rate, you, you can't avoid it, even though you're a nice guy or gal. But there, if you identify locally with your state representative or state senator, that's, that's critical regardless of where the boundaries are. Uh, yeah, gerrymandering can make a difference. But it's getting harder to do in a technical age and uh, harder to detect. And I think it's, to some extent, overrated. Okay. It is legal, but uh, I think some of these national trends or statewide trends overcome gerrymandering. And uh, some of the losses are not as a result of gerrymandering, but simply a change in statewide voting habits or yeah. national voting habits. Okay. Um, thinking about uh, sort of the general public now, um, what does the public not know about the Indiana General Assembly and how it operates? <laughs> well, they, I, I think it's hard for them, general public generally, with few exceptions, hard for them to understand uh, how it operates or why it's necessary to get along with the other party or with anybody for that matter. 
and it's hard to understand the work it takes in getting any kind of legislation passed, how many hands it has to go through and how many voices have to be heard. So the process isn't as cut and dried and open and shut, so to speak. It doesn't just happen, it's a process. So I guess the biggest thing the public doesn't understand is legislation is a process. And it does, it's not a package that just gets passed down the assembly line. It is a process. Yeah. Uh, what else do they not understand? Well, I didn't, I thought I was more in tune than most, uh, but didn't understand all of the dynamics of government and legislature, but that's okay too. Right. Okay. Um, what enduring qualities do you think the people of Indiana still have? You mean the general populace? Yeah. Well, uh, authenticity. I, I think we have Hoosiers, by and large, are authentic people. They are who they say they are. And uh, that they have uh, that dash of integrity and uh, makes them authentic and uh, genuine. I thoroughly enjoyed uh, people. If you don't like people, you shouldn't be in the general assembly. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's uh, be hard to hard to be a, a member of the general assembly if you can't get along with people very well. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes people get elected, and you wonder how it ever happened. <laughs> Maybe ever met him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. Well, so I think the people have authenticity and uh, and uh, that leads to some integrity and some interest in the world around them. By and large, they're, they're uh, darn good set of citizens. They want to do the right thing for the right reasons. They want to, they want to be good Americans. Yeah. That's one of the phrases I tend to throw around lightly. I'll have a waitress bring me an extra napkin. I say, thank you, you're a good American. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think by and large we have a, a dang good state. Yeah, that's good. Um, let's see. Last question I have for you then. Um, what do you want the people of Indiana to know about their role when it comes to the function of the Indiana General Assembly? I would like people to take kind of a longer view of or a better look at the process uh, and uh, understand that you have to have a little bit of a longer view and that uh, the General Assembly is populated with people sincerely trying to do their best for their locality and their state. And just understand that people may have different viewpoints, but they are trying. And uh, they're trying to do what they think is a 
good thing to do. Uh, so I want them to understand the, the process rather than a product on the assembly line and that uh, uh, you can have people of goodwill even though they have dumbass views. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not very nice to say, but uh, it seems an exaggeration. But, you know, uh, you may think they're a foolish person or something, but hold back, hold back. Right. Yeah, okay. Well, that's all the questions I have for you. Is there anything that I did not ask about that you want to mention? Oh, probably. <laughs> okay. I don't know, Ben. Right now, that's... Uh, I talked longer than I thought I should. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, it's, it's totally fine. All right, well, thanks again for doing this. I appreciate it. Thank you. Talk to you later. All right, okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.